Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 108. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, a longtime acquaintance on the podcast, a much-requested guest, and someone who I wanted to talk to a long time, who actually has been instrumental in some of the concepts we've put up on the website, Professor Nelson Puentes, also known as one of the founders of Inverted Gear. Nelson, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Good, thanks. Uh, very good, very good. And hey, you mentioned before we started recording that today is a special anniversary for you. Yeah, a year ago, I was traveling to South America, and I visited my friend's academy in, uh, in Ecuador, in Guayaquil, Ecuador, with Louis Toralde and his team, and that was the last time I had a gi on. <laughs> it's been over a year now. Man, that's sad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It feels a lot longer than that because I'm with you. It's been a long time since I've actually suited up <laughs> and it, it feels like it's been forever up here in Vancouver. I'm hesitant to even say what the state of the union is up here because it changes like on a week by week basis. If things get really bad, they have to restrict things. If things get better, they have to loosen it up. So I know that if I say this and something goes live in two weeks, the situation may have changed again. But right now, the gyms are closed. I haven't been on the mats since like March. So definitely it's something that I'm missing. It feels like it's been a lifetime, though. So I'm kind of wondering how bad I'm going to suck when I get back on the mats. <laughs> yeah, we're all in the same boat. Well, well, that's the nice thing, right? I mean, it's not just me. Everyone is kind of taking a lot of time off. So at least everyone's going to be rusty when we all get back. So Nelson, I know a little bit about your history. I know that you and your wife started Inverted Gear as a jujitsu clothing and apparel brand. I know that you'd made the decision to do this full time. You spent a lot of time trotting the globe, visiting other gyms, and all of that life experience kind of funneled back into your business. And I would love to maybe just hear in your words, your story, you know, how did you and your wife, Hillary, come to create this business that now is probably the favorite brand of a lot of people in the sport, myself included? Oh, thank you, guys. So the way I like to tell the story is that I, I created the business, but my wife kept it afloat. I started the business in 2012. I was teaching in an academy in New Jersey. I was at Purple Belt at the time. One of my students came up with a logo, and we got T-shirts made and went to a tournament. And people started asking, it's like, hey, where you get that T-shirt? I was like, oh, I made it. I was like, oh, can I buy one? Just because they like the logo. Dude, that logo is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no secret that the logo is a big part of our success. So after that t-shirt was made and people start, kept asking me about it, I was reading like a four-hour work week and like some of the early Gary Vaynerchuk stuff. So I wanted to start my own business. So maybe the idea of like maybe this whole apparel thing, I could do it. And, I, and also like, you know, this was 2012. So the whole... Jiu-Jitsu apparel landscape and geek company was completely different than it is now. Maybe there were 15 brands based in the U.S. Now it's over 100. I don't know how many are going to be left after Corona is gone. But we started the brand in 2012. I met Hillary December of that year. We started dating. And then she was a graphic designer. Uh, she's a graphic designer. A lot of people don't know this, but she made uh, like Marcelo Garcia logo. She did a lot of work for like Rafael Lobato's logo. Solos Academy and like some of the work for the for the book layout. So she's been doing a lot of like, you know, graphic design, like behind the scenes in jiu-jitsu for a long time. And she took like one look at the design files I was sending to the factories and she just like shook her head and she's like, What are what are you doing? 
how are they getting this right? I was like, well, they're not. Like, we're getting a lot of samples done. <laughs> so she she took over all, all graphic design for Inverted Gear. And both of us have done every job on the business from, like, you know, designing stuff to back then we were what is only known as the old warehouse, my mom's basement. And so we, we used to ship everything ourselves. We, we're back to shipping everything ourselves now. And that was 2012. So, you know, we've been doing this for almost nine years now. And little by little, the brand gained traction. And we, we've been like, you know, ever since COVID started, we've been like branching out a little bit outside of jujitsu uniforms because we got so comfortable doing that, that there were a lot of projects that I had in my mind for a long time, like the kettlebells and the backpacks. I never got to them, but then like, you know, once there's a global pandemic and all the gyms are closed, I had to figure something out to sell besides uh, kimonos. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'd love to know a little bit more about that. But first one, I mean, just one comment on the brand. I think that most listeners would probably agree that the inverted gear brand and the logo are one of the most iconic logos in the sport. Like if you were to ask me to describe what the 93 brand logo looks like, I can't even remember what it looks like. And I've bought their geese before, right? If you were to ask me to describe like the Hayabusa logo, well, that one, I, I mean, I guess it's a little bit iconic, but most of these companies, they don't really have very good branding. It's usually just like words in a funky font. And additionally, I think that especially prior to you guys coming along, a lot of the brands really weren't tapping into the spirit of jujitsu. I mean, I remember back when I started training, a lot of the brands were going for that kind of stupid like UFC MMA aggressive look with like barbed wire and like splattered blood and tribal patterns and just going really aggressive but inverted gear is one of the first brands that I encountered that kind of touched more on the playful side of the martial art which I think is actually the most important and iconic thing about jiu-jitsu and the brand I mean everyone knows the upside down panda right I don't think many people could describe exactly what the manto logo looks like right but everyone knows the upside down panda so that's one of the things I just adore about the brand Yeah, one thing I really like about that branding is, like Steve said, it's kind of like a playful design as opposed to a douchebaggy, aggressive design. I kind of went through this process when I was thinking about designing the logo for my gym. I basically brainstormed every idea from two people grappling in an action position, like a triangle. You know, it sounds like a great idea. And then you get a few samples done. You're like, oh, this actually looks horrible. And then you look at what are what are the other schools doing? It's usually like a a circle or a triangle and then the logo inside of it. Or or they'll use animals, but unlike inverted brand, they'll use like Looney Tunes, bulldogs <laughs> or or fighting fish or uh, sharks or, you know, like really aggressive predator animals. And it kind of takes away from it. It almost is like it's it's taking itself too seriously when you see branding like that. Yeah. But when you see an inverted panda, it's like, it's kind of cute, it's playful, it's memorable, it's something that you'd want to wear. And it's just a cool idea to see uh, an animal that's like unathletic, like a panda, and then you see it in a compromised position, like it's inverted. And I think that's probably why a lot of people saw that and they're like, wow, that that is branding that really sticks out to me. And that's something that I could see myself wearing. Oh, thank you guys. Yeah, definitely around that time, I read uh, Seth Godin's book, uh, The Purple Cow. And then, like, you know, we definitely wanted something that would stand up. And at the time, like Steve mentioned, Affliction and Tap Out and Stream Couture were just at its height. Mm -hmm. Like, I joke around, like, I remember, like, around that time, I think 2011, like, even the IBGGF World's T-shirt was, like, black with silver lettering on that style. That's how pervasive it was. Mm-hmm. And then we went the complete opposite direction and like, you know, made this like panda that is like <laughs> no tough guy worth the salt will wear that. And people gravitated towards it. And like, you know, it's worked out. Yeah, I think the beauty of jiu-jitsu is that it is a martial art for regular people, right? I mean, yeah, there are people who train jiu-jitsu who are like absolute monster athletes, but the beauty of jiu-jitsu is that a regular person can suit up in their gi, and if they train long enough, they can become a very, very competent grappler to the point where they could easily defeat, you know, 99.9% of the general public. And trying to paint it as this like art of killers and violent people, I think it really does a disservice to the art. I mean, the reason why 
jujitsu blew up was because this dorky skinny guy went into a cage and beat everybody with aggressive hugging techniques, right? It's, it's, it's really never been a martial art about hurting people. It's been a, a martial art about controlling people and it's a martial art for, for regular people. And I think that your brand really accurately reflects that. Now, something that you did touch on though, you brought up how you've been kind of using the pandemic to explore other avenues, which is something that I think most people who have a jujitsu business have probably had to start evaluating. You know, when gyms started closing down, a lot of business models had to change significantly. Um, in the context of schools, we saw a big pivot towards things like Zoom classes or people really trying to promote their social media presence or their instructionals. And I know in your case, I mean, I can only imagine a company that is most known for selling geese and other jujitsu grappling apparel. I'm assuming you guys had to go through a similar pivot too. And I'd love to know how you use this opportunity to get to try those new things you hadn't been able to do before. Yeah, it was it was an interesting time. I mean, we're still in it. And like now, especially with the new strain that apparently is like even spreads even more rapidly, who, who knows where we're going to be three months from now, six months from now. One of the things we figure out pretty early on is like, okay, like some people are going to keep training no matter what, either like behind closed doors or at their house or whatever. And there's a group of people that like, you know, for whatever the risk factors are, are either going to take time off completely or pick like one training partner and train at home. So let's try to help those people. So we, we got some mats made was one of the first projects we did. It took forever to get them, like, you know, manufactured and shipped out. Same with the kettlebells. The second thing we did was the kettlebells. And, you know, like at that point, the, there was like a kettlebell shortage in the U.S. already. So everybody was ordering kettlebells. So finding a factory that would even take our order was was a pain. Yeah. See, so you guys, you guys make kettlebells? Yeah. We got our first shipment in December. Uh, we ordered them in May. <laughs> nice. I did not know that. I was just in a Zoom call with um, our marketing team. We had like initial push uh, right before they came in, and we took some pre-orders, and then like we really haven't had that many sales since. So we're gonna start putting a lot more content out and like making sure people know that we actually have them. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people are in the same boat you are. Like there's so much stuff that goes up in social media, or, or like you know we have we do have or email newsletter that like you know some people just missed it. Is the kettlebell the upside down panda? Like you see some kettlebells or like the stormtrooper helmets or the apes? No, we, yeah, we didn't do this statue. It's just a regular kettlebell, a regular shape, but it does have, the cast has a panda logo on it. On one side is the panda casted onto the kettlebell. That's pretty cool. I do like kettlebells. I, I work out with them, but something that I've been getting into a lot lately is using a mace. Have you ever used a mace before? So we have steel clubs in now, and then the maces are coming in. That is something I picked up during the pandemic. I've been working with maces and steel clubs. Dude, they're so awesome, especially for like grip strength and strengthening your forearms and your fingers. I've, I've really enjoyed working with the mace. I think I actually like working out with the mace more than kettlebells personally. Interesting. So the one issue I run into is my from years to jujitsu and getting armbar and not doing enough mobility for it. My forearms got really tight. Yeah. So I went too hard on it <laughs> to start off with the mace. I ended up giving myself golfer's elbow. Yeah. yeah, I had really bad tendonitis. Yeah, I could see in my that. elbow. Yeah. So I'm back. Like you know, I had to like baby step it back. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I really enjoy the clubs and I really enjoy the maces. And like one of the things you find out pretty fast with the mace is like you're working out, but it's a martial art at the same time because some of the movement patterns, like, you know, you can see how to translate to like, you know, swinging a sword mm -hmm. or a or spear or something, you know? Well, I, one thing I noticed- Even a turn throw. <laughs> kind yes. of, kind of similar mechanics, right? Like one, one thing I noticed about swinging the mace is it's like, uh, it's very technique oriented. I find it's not so much a strength thing, but it's it's all about how you swing it. And I realized the more that I make big, wide motions with my shoulders and, and uh, exaggerate the movement with my wrist, the more that I was able to make my swinging more efficient. When I first started, you know, basically your your instinct on how to swing a mace is basically entirely incorrect. <laughs> and so you have to do a little bit of research. And it, it took me about a... I'd say it probably took me about two weeks of, of swinging the mace before I felt like, okay, I finally understand like 
what is the correct technique to do this? And now, now I feel like I can do it, you know, w- without exerting a whole lot of energy actually. And, and I can get like a decent workout using the, with a big range of motion, but it's really like, I don't know about you, but I found that using uh, like big movements with the hands, moving the hands is, is a huge part of how you can move the mace rather than like trying to actually control the, the head of the mace. It's more about how your hands move so that you you kind of, uh, I can't even describe it. It's, it's almost like the, like you kind of ride the swing, you know, you don't try and control the swing, but you try and ride the swing. It's funny because it sounds like you're describing jujitsu. Totally. Right? Like with jujitsu, usually your your natural instinctual mm-hmm. reaction is yeah. wrong. Yeah. Right. It's the worst thing to do. And it's more about learning to move with the motion and not try to outmuscle your aggressor, but try to use leverage to manipulate them. It's it's an interesting thing how like, you know, we've we've evolved to be able to fight and to do all of these things, but it's funny because our natural reaction is actually not the most efficient way to do it. So it's interesting to hear you guys talking about the same thing regarding mace swings as we would talk about with grappling itself for sure one of the things i really like about the maces and the steel clubs is like you know the catch position like you know imagine having your elbows like you really have to lock your elbows down to the to your rib cage yeah and keep your arms like a 90 degree angle while you're working through your transitions and that's just good grappling position like you know that's something that gets drilled into you like high school wrestling or like even before that like you know like i didn't get to wrestle as a little kid but i always see it uh little kid wrestling tournaments it's like elbows in elbows in elbows in Mm -hmm. you know so being able to work that out whilst you're working out and also like you know when you're working out with maces or steel clubs a lot of it is like power endurance and strength endurance Mm -hmm. it's not about how heavy of a mace can i swing but like you know use power over time like you know strength endurance over time it's like how how long can i do this exercise right you know what terrifies me about the mace is i I think maces are great if you've got a dedicated space like a gym you can go to either a converted room in your house or you've got um, an actual gym you can go to if you're a gym instructor. But as someone who's basically like my only space available is my house at this point in time, I'm always terrified of like losing my grip and throwing it through the window. (laughs) My daughter (laughs) runs into the room and it clobbers her in the face. And So actually the challenge I've had, and I suspect a lot of other people in quarantine have similar issues, is with limited space and with that kind of risk of breaking stuff or breaking people, I've kind of had to tweak my fitness routine to things I can safely do in my in my living quarters. And so I've been using a lot of like resistance bands, which are, they're not fantastic, but you can get a decent workout with them, but it's not the same. But man, I would love to see like alternatives that you can do if, you know, you can do it in your house when a toddler's running around, you don't have to worry about like breaking the floor or the walls. That's the challenge that I've been dealing with recently. I'm actually looking at these uh, these maces right now and your kettlebells. They're really cool. Your mace is a little bit different from mine. It's basically like a baseball bat shape, eh? So yeah, like that's a steel club. Oh, that, that's the club. Or maces are not in yet. So oh. that's that's a that's a heavy club. Okay, yeah. That goes from like five to twenty-five. Or maces are gonna go from three kilos. We made the maces in kilos, so there's like smaller jumps in between. Right. So it's going to be like a 2.2 pound jump in, in between because the style of mace swinging I like is you do it like, you know, you pick a time frame, like 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and you just work on transitions over and over. Some people call them flows or transitions right. or like different exercises mm-hmm. with the mace. So like, you know, it's almost like a loaded cardio. You're doing cardio with like these heavy pieces of equipment and then like, you know, over this long lever. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you a question, Nelson, and I wonder about this because you're mentioning here that you're kind of using your intuition to figure out the best way to position this product and get it out there. But how do you manage pivots, right? Like what happens if you think, man, this is exactly the product that I would want. You get a prototype, you love it, it works great. You put it up on the store, but like it doesn't sell or it doesn't resonate with people out there. How, what's the process look like? And as a guy who works in software product, I'm really interested to know this. You know, how do you tell if your product is like resonating and how it can be improved and if you can improve it how do you manage that process without upsetting the customers who were used to the way it was before this is a good question so the kettlebell pivot and the maces and the steel clubs we're talking about it was kind of forced on us since like you know 80 percent of our business before that 80 percent of our like you know the sales that come into the website were uh gi sales and i think may of last year 
or sales had dropped something like 95% over like an over average month. Holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a big following the jiu-jitsu community over like, you know, social media. We have a decent sized uh, newsletter. We have uh, 12,000 subscribers on our newsletter. So what product that is not geese, since people are not, like, you know, gyms are shut down, but people have to stay in shape. And like, you know, they might not be training as much jiu-jitsu as they can because like, you know, training partners are not available anymore. So we figure out best way to train at home for your average grappler is going to be kettlebells, maces, and steel clubs. Mm -hmm. And I do have a fitness background. I never graduated college, but like, you know, I was going in for like a kinesiology degree. I was like working as a strength coach and I was starting to get my CSCS once I graduated college. But at one point, uh, I took a year off to save and pay for my last year of school, and I took that money and started inverted gear instead. So I had kettlebell certifications back in like 2006. So I've been doing kettlebells longer than I've been doing jujitsu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can see why you would get into that. So like you know, I was like, okay, like this, this is something like one people need because there was like shortage in the U.S. I don't know how it was in Canada, but like you know, in the U.S. you couldn't buy a piece of fitness equipment, like let alone a kettlebell anywhere. Yeah, same here. So we put that order in and we trusted it as like, hey, like, you know, there's, there's a need for this. So like, that's number one. Whenever you, you want to make something with the kettlebells, it was a little bit tougher because like, you know, if we're making geese or rash guards or shorts. Like uh, one of the things we make is like as a child, you can ask my mom about this. I hated shorts below my knee. I've been like team short shorts <laughs> since day one, right? <laughs> and for whatever reason, like most jiu-jitsu brands, everybody made these really long shorts. It's like they're patterned after MMA trunks or something. I think that's probably yes. why. Yeah, exactly. Like besides like the obnoxious, like a uh, bad boy, like, you know, like ballet tutor shorts, like no one had like a shorter cut of shorts. So when we started making shorts, like, you know, we got the first sample and like I told my wife, I was like, I hate these. They're touching my knees. Like we need, like, yeah. you know, we need shorter shorts. <laughs> so we started making short shorts and people love them. So like, we know, we order more and like, you know, that's, you know, the first order was like 50 shorts. So like, you know, it's not that big of a gamble. Now, when we made the kettlebells, uh, in order to get the kettlebells made, it was like, you know, a stupid amount of weight that we needed to order because like all the factors were so busy, they were not going to bother going through all the work of like, you know, casting a panda. We had to make a mold mm -hmm. for every kettlebell size. And then we had mm. to like, you know, get boxes that set our name on it and like all this stuff. So like, you know, it was a pretty big gamble that we took on the fitness equipment. I can remember when I was in middle school and like, if you wore short shorts, you were not cool. It was, <laughs> everyone was wearing board shorts <laughs> past the knees when I was uh, going to school. You and I are dating ourselves here, Matt, because yeah. I remember the same. Like it when we were in school back in like the 90s, like you were wearing shorts that were like balloon pants. Like they were really baggy and loose and like down to your shins. They were basically like a big pair of pants. <laughs> yeah. And prior to that, there was a ton of short shorts, you know, before our day. And then as we went through school, long shorts became really popular. And now, you know, I have students in my gym that are coming in, they're 20 years old or whatever, and they're like, Matt, like you got to get some, some shorter shorts. These, they're like, you're wearing boomer shorts. Yeah, <laughs> so they said, that's great. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, shit. So I look into it and like my, my sponsor, BC Kimonos, where I get my shorts from, all of their designs were board shorts. They were all like longer designs, which is not ideal for grappling, right? And th these are the type of shorts that you would see in the UFC, right? You would see... Yeah, I don't want to get into it too much, but if you're wearing board shorts while you're grappling in nogi, very unpleasant things can yeah. wind up happening. <laughs> it's hard to get into ashigaramis and things like that. Like if anyone does gravity drills, it's just, it's a pain in Your the... toes get stuck in the shorts. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pain in the ass, right? You're always getting stuck in the shorts. And so in street clothes, the short shorts are our back. I remember in summer, it's like most people that I saw wearing shorts were wearing shorter shorts unless they were on the basketball court, right? And then you'd see the, you'd see longer cut shorts, but definitely I did a new batch of, of gear for the gym and everyone wanted short shorts. That was, that is now a hundred percent. What is, what is cool again? Yeah. That, that makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, let me ask you a related question then, Nelson, because in your line of business, if you're dealing with physical goods, there's a, a huge cost of goods, right? Like for the type of stuff that Matt and I do, where we're making informational content, 
you know, there's, yeah, there's a lot of time that goes into planning this stuff and producing and get and getting it out there. But I don't need to drop like a hundred grand to place an order if I want to make new episodes of the podcast, right? So the risk reward for us, we can do a lot of experimentation, right? We can try new things. And if people don't like it, we can just move on to something else. But that's a lot harder if you're dealing with equipment. And you brought up a great example there where you kind of had to roll the dice with uh, the kettlebells because you've got to sink a lot of money if you want to get that first batch. And then, of course, with kettlebells being so heavy, I'm sure the shipping cost was brutal as well. So how do you deal with that? That's something that always kind of scared me about going into a physical equipment business is just the sheer cost of getting the business up and running, the cost of shipping, of inventory. Like you mentioned, you know, you need to have a warehouse. Do you have any advice on like the mindset or just some pointers for dealing with that kind of thing? Because I've always wondered how you would effectively run a business like that. So I think since the pandemic started and we decided we're going to get the kettlebells, the fulfillment company we were using, their warehouse, they were renting like this really cheap warehouse space. It was in a basement. So I told them, I was like, hey, guys, like, you know, I like working with you. You're doing a good job. And we're going to get kettlebells. Are you interested in fulfilling those? And the guys were like, we're not moving. So as long as we put them in the basement, I was like, you're not bringing 10,000 pounds of kettlebells downstairs to be brought upstairs later. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes no sense. So I started looking for a warehouse and in uh, September we moved in, we moved into the space and I've been shipping everything. So like, you know, our overhead actually came down, you know, the kettlebell order was in and everything. We finally put the order in my cost for the warehousing is not going to go up or down. If I have this kettlebell sitting in a corner, you know, mm-hmm. same with everything else that we ordered this year, actually like, we made backpacks and like the price break between 500 backpacks and a thousand backpacks was like, like it was ridiculous how much cheaper it was. So I was like, like same thing. It's like, Hey, like, you know, I'm already paying for that warehouse space for the next year. So might as well use order these backpacks. We'll sell them eventually. Mm-hmm. So whenever you, you making these big bets is you gotta like, look at, uh, how does your overhead look, you know? And is the cost, of ordering this, not only coming out of your budget uh, for the things you're manufacturing, like, you know, the cost of the goods you sell, but am I also putting myself in a hole? Am I going to need a bigger warehouse space? Or if I'm using a fulfillment company, like what kind of fees am I going to get charged if these things don't sell? Like, you know, some fulfillment companies wouldn't charge you any fees, if, like, you know, if you get selling within 30 days, but then after that, you get charged for everything you're using for every overstock. Mm-hmm. We were able to get this warehouse for pretty cheap. So our overhead is really low, especially since now I'm doing all the fulfillment. Like we don't have any employees working at the warehouse besides uh, Hillary and myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have like as low as an overhead you can have right now until we get out of the pandemic and things move forward. Right, right. Do you still teach at a gym or is Inverted Gear your full-time job? Inverted Gear has been my full-time job since 2014. Got it, got it. I was teaching in New Jersey, and like right around the time I was, we were getting married with Hillary, we decided to move to Pennsylvania and open an academy. The academy was open for like six months, and at the time we really wanted to travel. And like, you know, we didn't have any student loans, we didn't really have any debt, and uh, we didn't have kids yet. So we're like, you know, if we don't do it now, it's never going to happen. So sold the mats, closed the academy, and started traveling. I think we ended up traveling something ridiculous, like, 32 countries over the last five years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen it on your blog. I mean, you guys have been everywhere and it seems like that was a pretty instrumental experience for both you and Hillary. Yeah, I mean, like it definitely helped the business grow. We met Christian Grogard at the first US Globe Tortoise Camp. Mm-hmm. And like, I remember that year, there was like a lot of American grapplers that were supposed to be teaching at the camp. And then a lot of, I think like something like four or five of them pulled out a week before camp. So Christian was kind of struggling. And like me and Hillary were just going as like campers, you know, we just pay our fee and we were going. Mm-hmm. So I messaged Christian and said, hey, like, you know, we're going to camp. Uh, me and my wife were both black belts. Like, you know, if you need help with anything, just let me know. We can cover classes, help do an open mat, whatever. And Christian refunded us the money and put us on the schedule. And like, you know, we became friends and told me, hey, you ever want to come to uh, one of the European camps? Just let me know. I'll cover your, like, you know, your room and board. 
And I was like, sure. So we went to like a camp in Austria. We learned how to snowboard and like we were hooked. I think we did, we've done 10 camps. We were supposed to do like three camps, three or four camps last year. I think we were supposed to do like something like four camps last year. And then like, you know, COVID hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been interesting seeing how Christian has been continuing to run those camps because they've got like very, very regimented COVID testing protocols for the camps that they are still doing. But of course, you can't keep the same schedule that you used to have in the in the olden days, right? It's just not really feasible yeah. now. But they're, I mean, those guys are doing it really great when it comes to how they've organized so they can keep things safe and somewhat operational during the pandemic. Something I did want to touch on, you talked about how you didn't have a lot of like student debt, for example, so you were, you were able to make these decisions. And I wonder when you built the business and when you started scaling it up, what was your philosophy on taking on debt? I mean, of course, with your type of business, you have to spend a lot of money if you want to ultimately make money, you know, making this gear it's not cheap, then you've got to worry about storing it, shipping it, fulfilling it, all of that. Did you guys take on like a, if you can share this info, did you take on a ton of debt to make that happen? Or did you bootstrap it and make sure that you were kind of always running at least a little bit profitably so that you didn't put yourself in any risk? So it was a lot of bootstrapping. I started the business, I think I had saved up something like $6,000 to cover my, uh, like, you know, local state university in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And I put a pre-order in, a lot of my students pre-order, and then I think the last of the money came from like a few random orders from the website that, you know, I was getting no traffic back then. And we were able to make, get 100 geese made. And then like, you know, we sold those 100 geese and ordered 120, and then sold those 120 and ordered 180. And then when we got to like 200, they didn't fit in my mom's basement anymore. <laughs> so we had to get a fulfillment company. At uh, one point, my dad gave me a $20,000 loan and I paid it back in a year. And we, we've been moving along pretty good since then. We use Shopify mm -hmm. as our uh, website host and like, you know, shopping cart. And they do have a really nice, uh, like a working capital service. So they calculate, like, you know, they make you an offer based on how much money the store makes in a month. And then if you take the working capital loan, instead of like, you know, having to make a, a payment on a schedule, they just take 10% uh, of every sale you make until your loan is paid back. That's awesome. We, we've done that a few times. That, that's helped a lot. That really helped us, especially earlier this year. Mm -hmm. And uh, PayPal PayPal has a similar thing too. Like, you know, that that definitely helped us stay afloat during those like lean months earlier this year. I mean, last year. Yeah. Having a gym myself, you know, I get, I get like gear made, athletic gear, geese, no geese stuff. But man, you're totally right. Like if you if you order like a hundred geese, that takes up so much fucking space. It's crazy how much space that that takes up. And then if they're not moving, they're just kind of sitting there and you're just like, you know, you've put this money into it and it, it can be nerve wracking if that is your main source of income. Like, I'll be honest, I buy my gear. I mean, I like to have my guys to wear it at tournaments and stuff because it's exposure, but I definitely get more out of the exposure of the gear than actually making money off of it. People don't see my brand internationally and they're like, oh, I want to buy your your club's gear. Like I don't even offer it online. It's you kind of have to be a member to get it. So it's not like I'm selling tons of it. But yeah, it takes up tons of space just to hold stock. And I would imagine things like uh, like kettlebells and maces and clubs, you know, I mean, you're paying shipping based on weight. Right. So that's got to be an expensive operation if you want to do it properly with all the branding and everything. I can't imagine that being cheap. Oh, it's definitely not cheap. And I think one of the biggest issues too, when you run a business, when you're making physical products is when stuff is in the pipeline, you know, you're, you're putting your money down, then like, you know, depending on whatever arrangement you have with the factory, whether you're putting like 50% or 30% down payment, and then the rest before it ships, you know, like we order the kettlebells in May and then like we got them and then they shipped in September and we got them in December. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like, you know, that's like nine months like my money was just in limbo somewhere in China, you know? Yeah. And, and right now it's like impossible to buy um, like plates, you know, like I just bought a barbell and uh, one of my students had some old plates that he brought in from his, from his home. But like tracking down 45 plates right now is really difficult because everyone is trying to set up like a home gym of sorts. It's definitely difficult to track down this gear. I got a question for, you, you know, we were discussing kettlebell designs, just a quick question. Cause I'm, I'm looking at your, your kettlebells and your maces uh, on your website. 
or sorry, your clubs and your kettlebells are pretty cool. They've got like the, the inverted Panda logo etched into it. Did you have the option to do like a, you know how Joe Rogan has those kettlebells where it's like a, it's physically like a head of an, of an ape. Like, do you, did you have the ability to make a kettlebell that is literally an upside down Panda? Yeah. Like I joke around that if you spend enough time on Alibaba.com, you can get anything made that your heart desires. <laughs> but right. the question is like, you know, it was really expensive to get this stuff made, yeah. like how much it is to get those things made and the volume it requires for it to make sense. is crazy. Like I, I did look into yeah. it. Well, there's also the utility factor too, right? Like if you start making weights and very unorthodox, complicated shapes they can be harder to handle especially kettlebells right if there's weird stuff sticking out of them and different angles you might be bumping yourself or even injuring your hands depending on the angle you're holding them at so i every time i see those things that are kind of like designed with a novel shape i'm always a little bit concerned that they're like you know the form is there it looks cool but the function is not there i've seen a lot of jujitsu gear that's designed that way like you know like wrestlers knee pads that just have like weird angular angles that are supposed to be super high tech but you try to put them on and they're just impossible to use properly right? so sometimes simple is better if you want people to actually use the equipment rather than just look at the equipment yeah for sure i mean one of like you know or, or core values of the company is just like you know simple designs and like everything we've ever made there's no hundred patches on the back of the gi, pretty simple colorways. Same with the t-shirts, like, you know, nothing too crazy. We were talking about pivoting and finding your place, your place in the market. It's like we long time ago, we figured like that's, that's where we fit in. And we like to keep things simple and, you know, we're making something the highest quality we can find, whether it's a gi, a rush car, a kettlebell, like the, we made polos and I actually went to Peru and visited factories until I find one that I liked so I could make I could make the polos in Peru with like this really special cotton that's called Pima cotton is like the softest thing you'll ever wear. So I nerd out on this kind of things, supply chain management. I, I just found out that I was like a college major like <laughs> not too long ago and I was like kicking myself. I was like <laughs> I should have studied that. I would have been so much happier when I was in school instead of, instead of like taking <laughs> physiology, I mean, uh, biology and anatomy and physiology. Well, let's talk about those polos for a second, because I love those polos. And I mean, as a guy who works a desk job, the problem I have with a lot of like jujitsu sport gear is it's overly aggressive or it's totally out of place in an office. Like, I mean, I'm an old ass man and I'm a dad, right? I'm not going to be walking around wearing these affliction shirts. In fact, even a lot of the regular jujitsu clothing just looks super out of place when you go to an office. But I love those inverted gear polos because they just, they blend so well with a professional environment and they're, you know, they look better than most of the other polos that other people would wear. And I'd love to see more people getting into that kind of line of stuff that is jujitsu related because there's a lot of grapplers out there who are you know their dads or their working professionals or their high school teachers and they're not going to be remotely interested in wearing like fight gear or competitive sport gear right but they do want to represent that they love jujitsu and there aren't many products out there for them except for those awesome polos. And I'd love to see more stuff like that because that stuff totally speaks to me and to, to people like me as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm looking at your stuff on the, on the website. It's actually really cool. That polo is awesome. And it's like a very low key jujitsu logo, but it's, it's attractive. And most people would look at it and be like, Oh, that's a cool logo An upside down Panda. It's memorable, but it still says, Hey, like, I do jujitsu. It's also uh, suitable for professional atmosphere as well. Yeah, you could totally wear it in a boardroom, right? It doesn't say like tap or snap or something stupid on it, right? It's just, it's a very attractive professional looking shirt that is giving off a very particular signal in case you ever wind up in a room with someone else who does jujitsu, right? You have something to talk about because everybody knows the upside down panda. It's it's really clever stuff. I, I don't know if it's you or Hillary or both of you who kind of come up with that strategy, but I, I can tell that there's so much strategy that goes into the way that you guys position your products. And that's one of the things I love about it. So the way I look at it is I, I think about it and like, you know, it pitches to Hillary and Hillary makes it better than like it was ever in my head. <laughs> that's like the relationship I have with my wife also. Basically. Yeah. So the other thing you were saying about like, you know, being understated, like, People see it and know it's a jiu-jitsu shirt. 
is like everything I wear is like, you know, if I want a Star Wars t-shirt to wear during Star Wars day, I don't buy a t-shirt that says Star Wars on it, but I wear a t-shirt that like anybody that's into Star Wars looks at it, it's like, oh, this dude's into Star Wars. I like this guy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But you don't want to necessarily have like be repping the, the brand so hard that you're going to look like a weirdo to other people. And I think that's where a lot of not just companies, but also even just competitors and gyms. You, you know, I know that you're a listener of the podcast. Matt and I talk about this all the time where a lot of the people who really kind of like run the jujitsu community and the scene, they look at jujitsu through the lens of stuff that they like and they would do. And so a lot of the, the training regiments and the gyms and the equipment that gets made, it's very much catered to someone who is chosen to fully dedicate their life to jujitsu and nothing else. And it kind of feels like people like myself who do it as a hobby and have fun with it and love it, but we do other stuff too. Like it kind of feels like we're on the sidelines and we're not really the target audience. Whereas it feels like you guys kind of make stuff for people like me, which I think is one of the things I like about the brand is it feels much more inclusive than brands that are hyper competitive or aggressive. Yeah. I mean, Long time ago, I like I looked around and I realized like my circle of friends is like them doing jujitsu is like the least interesting thing about them. Yeah. <laughs> so so many brands are like you said they're just on that hyper competitive world championship or go home mentality, and like that's great. Like you know some people, especially when they're younger and like you know they need that in their life and like you know they set their goal and like they want to train all the time. Like man, go for it. Like if you're willing to pay that price and like you know go through that grind and you're able to support yourself while you're training like two double sessions, triple sessions, whatever, like good for you. But like, you know, most of the people in the jiu-jitsu world are like, you know, like you said, they're, they're parents, they're professionals, they're lawyers, whatever. And like, you know, jiu-jitsu is their outlet. So we definitely position ourselves towards those people more than the hyper-competitive aspect of the sport. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, those hyper-competitive people, like give them 10, 15 years and they're going to be old dads like the rest of us and old moms like the rest of us. So it's a, it's a very short-term mentality. And I do feel that that market is underserved, just jujitsu for, for normal people in a lot of ways. And I think that that's one of the great things from your brand. I would love to see more stuff like that. Like I'd love to see inverted gear chinos and inverted gear button downs and like more stuff that I could wear to work. That I think is something that not enough people get into in jujitsu. I, I mean, I have no idea how it would sell, but I would buy it for sure. <laughs> if no one else does, I would. Right now we have a good working relationship with the factory in Peru. And then from the logistics standpoint, it's like really good. Cotton goods coming from Peru get taxed differently than like, you know, the stuff we make in China or Pakistan is like much cheaper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we really like that working relationship we have with the factory. And I get to practice my Spanish. I'm speaking of Spanish. So now <laughs> I get to talk to my Peruvian friends all the time. So um, we're working on uh, Henley shirts. Uh, we're working on some uh, French dairy sweatpants because I'm obsessed with those things and they're so expensive. Yes. So that's why I was like, hey, I, I need more samples. That I need samples. Ask for samples in every color, please. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I'm total. I think I'm totally going to buy some stuff from your store. I'm just looking over it right now and lots of great stuff. Yeah, I, I didn't mean for this episode to turn into an advertisement, but I feel like I'm going to have to go buy some stuff afterwards. <laughs> oh, we kind of did. Oh, I mean. Yeah, no. Thank you guys. Like, yeah. Uh, any questions? Like, you know, we can we can step away. Well, from... no, I I think this is super helpful. Like, I think that you're you're giving us some great insight into kind of the mind of how you run a a business like this. And I was really fascinated to hear that you kind of bootstrap this thing with six thousand bucks because I think a lot of people when they think about oh, you know, I I'd love to start a business, but it's just so much financial risk, and I just can't do that. I think that it really tells an interesting story and provides an interesting lesson that. If you're smart about it, you actually don't need to like mortgage your house and take out a quarter million dollar loan to get your business off the ground and then run the risk of losing it all. Like, I think people think that starting and trying a new business is a lot riskier than it actually is. Like if you are, if you bootstrap and you manage your costs carefully and try to stay in the black where you can, you can really keep the risk to yourself a lot lower than I think many people would imagine. And I think now is an interesting time for people to consider that because I mean, there's a lot of people who just due to this pandemic, they're going to have to make a fresh start. And 
if you were considering starting up and doing your own thing, like why not now? Right. I mean, if you have to make a fresh start anyway, why not do it now? Yeah. I mean, one of the things like people don't understand about starting a business and like starting like a small business, a small size started. Like I was telling you, like when, when I started the business, I was 26 or 24. I was like 24 living on my parents still haven't moved out yet. And I just ordered stuff. It got delivered to my mom's house. I stored it in the basement and I shipped it out of my mom's house. I was driving to the post office. And it's not, it's not a sexy thing. Like, you know, I, I was running a business out of my mom's basement for a year. And I didn't write myself a check. I didn't pay myself out of the business for like three years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All I did is I was teaching jujitsu at uh, three different places. I was teaching like private lessons. And I was working at a painting company. So I would teach like the first jujitsu class at 9 a.m., go back to my mom's house, shower, go work at the painting company until 5, and then teach jujitsu until 8.30. And then I would jump on my laptop and catch up on email, whatever factories I was talking to back then, trying to get like, you know, or, or samples done or like, you know, the first batch of geese done. And I did that. I was like on that train for the first year of the business. Then like the first, the next two years, I was still teaching, full, teaching jujitsu every day. And like that was paying my rent while working on the business. And like, you know, use whatever money was coming in was just retain earnings so we could order more gear and like, you know, grow our inventory. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lot sexier to just, go through this mental exercise where like, oh, like, you know, if I can get a big loan, I can get, I can, I can put a big order in and then like the, like, you know, then the orders are going to start rolling in and then I can pay myself. In theory, that's great. But when you have an overhead and like, you know, you owe the bank money or whoever you owe money, like, you know, whenever something goes wrong, it goes really wrong versus when you're like, you know, you're cash flowing the business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I uh, I got a question for you there, Nelson. What do you have to say to people who are maybe I've been there before, you know, you're in a job and maybe you've dedicated a decade or, you know, years of your life to this profession. And then you get in, you realize it's just it's not something you want to do anymore or something else has caught your eye and you've developed a new passion. And now you're you're thinking about maybe angling your career towards it could be a different career altogether, a completely different profession or you want to become an entrepreneur, but you're kind of in that limbo phase between jobs. There's a, there's a degree of risk. Let's, let's pretend the pandemic's not happening for a sec because the pandemic has, because of it, a lot of people have just lost their jobs and they've been forced to do new jobs, which I think has been negative for a lot of people, but also positive for a lot of people. Uh, because personally, I know people who have left, they've, they've, they've lost their job and now they're angling their life towards doing jujitsu for a living and they never would have made that transition unless the pandemic happened. So, so there's positives and negatives to that, but what do you say to people who are in a profession, they're starting to realize, okay, this actually isn't something I want to do. And I want to make a change. I want to, I want to get a new job. I want to start my own business, whatever, but they're like, they're just not ready to take that leap. What did, what advice do you have for someone like that? Start small. Like you don't, you do not have to quit your job to start a side hustle and then like you know if you're doing this side hustle and you like it and like you know this is something that you feel like you were meant to do and like you know it makes you happy keep growing that side hustle until like you know it makes enough income where you can sustain yourself early on in birdie gear when me and hillary like moved to pennsylvania and we started the gym that was like the first time we actually started getting like you know a paycheck out of inverted gear before that it was like maybe $500 a month or something like other than that it was just all going back in the business so don't be discouraged if whatever you're doing starts slow like you know like I look at our sales from 2012 and 2013 is like now I think you know like our average month before the pandemic or average month before the pandemic uh, we have more sales that we did in our first two years in business. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I, I started small with my business too. I really wanted to be like a high level chef. I never wanted to own my own restaurant though, because that just seemed like a logistical nightmare. But 
I, uh, you know, I was really at one point I was like really interested in being the best chef I could be. And then I, as I got about a decade into the industry and, and I was about a blue belt at the time, I realized, okay, I think actually jujitsu is a lifestyle that I can relate to a little bit more. And so I'm going to start thinking about angling my life towards teaching jujitsu for a living and just living the jujitsu life. And, uh, I had to do two jobs for like five years, something like four or five years and it sucked, but starting small kind of gave me that security where now, you know, because of the COVID and everything, because we had to lock down, I'm actually financially like not too bad in too bad of a place where I know people who have have lost their schools. And uh, a big part of it is because they started big, you know, they they just like quit their job and just bought a huge lease up front. And then, you know, something unforeseen like this happens, you can lose almost all your money. You don't have anything to fall back on. But if you can work those two jobs and start small, like you said, you start your side hustle at the same time and you put in the time and effort. Eventually, if that takes off, you can sort of, you know, you can leave your old career behind. So I think that that is, even though that's a path that that takes a lot of time and a lot of <laughs> a, a lot less sleep than what is what is preferable, I think it's the safer route to go personally for me. I mean, the one thing that jujitsu teaches you is that, like, you know, small incremental improvement over time will get you there. Mm -hmm. No, like, you know, when you're a white belt and you're always a black belt, you need to understand, like, you know, that guy was you at one point and he just kept showing up. He kept working on it. So having, like, you know, this perspective where, you know, whatever you are striving towards is going to take a long time. Uh, you might you definitely not going to see results right away. But if you stay on this path, you're going to get where you want to be. It's worth it. And like that's like, you know, you just being able to picture that for you and you just keep yourself motivated to all the like, you know, the highs and lows. That's something like, you know, I think grappling taught me and I'm able I've been able to apply it to other areas of my life. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, let me let me ask a question here, because you've brought up a lot of really great concepts. And you cited some books at the beginning that you really recommended. Um, what I'm wondering, as someone who has kind of bootstrapped here and figured everything out from kind of day one and built up this, this really well-known brand, are there any books or resources you would recommend to help someone get started or to get their first foot in the right direction if someone wanted to go down into this, this path and create their own business? Any particular readings or courses that you would suggest? The last really good business book I read, I uh, came out last year. I'm a big fan of the podcast, How, how I Started This, uh, Guy Rast. He came out with a book and it's an amazing read. I recommend that to anybody. How I Started This by Guy Rass. I'll have to give that a go. So this guy has a podcast and a book as well? Yes. So the, the it's an NPR podcast, How I Built This, Guy Rass. And then he came out with a book last year and he takes like, you know, like all the interviews he's done over the years with the podcast and like he intertwines them as he tells like, you know, stories from business leaders. Oh my, it's so good. It's really good. I mean. Like one of the most influential books I had, I read when I started was like Tim Ferriss' uh, Four Hour Work Week when it just came out, like, you know, around 2004, 2005, when I like first yeah. became aware of it. And like, I remember a lot of the online community is like, oh, like, you know, Tim Ferriss full of shit, like, you know, this is bullshit, no one can do that. And I just thought, I was like, oh man, like, you know, if I can work four hours a week, that means I can train all the time. <laughs> because I was like in that jujitsu mindset <laughs> yeah. where I just wanted to do jujitsu all the time. So I was like, oh, so if I, if I make this gi company and then like, you know, I get a fulfillment company, that means I don't have to fulfill the gis. So I can just train all the time. And then I'll just do the email in between and eventually have somebody else to do the email. And then I can just train. <laughs> and, uh, you know, being able to have like location independence was something I wanted for a long time. So you know, that, that went from being able to train all the time to traveling. And that then, like, you know, all the traveling that we did with my wife before we had kids. And, like, now now that we have our son, being able to, like, set my own schedule and, like, you know, whatever. Like, right now, it's a little bit different because of the pandemic and we're just keeping the overhead as low as possible. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of the fulfillment. So there's, like, you know, I just have to come to the warehouse and get, get some packages out. But I, I tried, I, like, you know, I usually come in between... 6 and 7 a.m. And then uh, USPS picks up around noon and then I'm out of here and then I get to spend the rest of the day with my son. So Tim's book about like, you know, 
like building a business where like you know you're not working 40 hours in a week was just mind-blowing to me and like it really set me on this path to where i am now <laughs> you're like you can do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, you know, I'm, I come, my, my family immigrated to the United States when I was 14. So I have like an immigrant father. My, like, you know, I grew up, my dad working like 60 hours a week, like different jobs. When I was in high school, uh, my dad had like two paper routes. So during the week, he would deliver like 50 newspapers, but like in the weekend, like that number would jump to like 300. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, that first year we were here, I was in, I was like a freshman in high school. I would get up at 4 a.m. every day with my dad and deliver the newspaper, like, you know, the, the New York Times on Saturday and Sunday. So like, you know, if that doesn't build a work ethic, like, I, <laughs> I don't know what yeah. does. Yeah, like grow, growing up with that, like, you know, be like seeing this thing with like Tim Bro, it's like, oh, like, you know. Yeah, I love the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. You can do this and you don't have to work as much. I was like, oh my God, like, yes, <laughs> please. I don't want to work 60 hours in a week. Like, you know, I want to be, I want to be around for all this stuff. So I think like, if you're not aware of Tim, I mean, like now his podcast is huge. All his other books are, are amazing as well. But I think four hour work week was, it's, if you're starting a business, that's a good read. Yes. There was one book, uh, I think it was the Lean Startup and talks like about AV testing and like some concepts about like, you know, starting a business. I think that's good as well. I really like, Thank You Economy and Jab, Jab, Hook by... Um, Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah, Gary Vaynerchuk. I think those were great. What else? Man, I've read so many business books this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one thing that you can definitely do with your time. I've been trying to maximize my literary intake as well. And yeah, it's funny, as I've kind of gotten older and more into the business side of things, my preference now tends to gravitate towards like nonfiction business books. And I have to second your recommendation of the four hour work week. I mean, that book is a great read. It put Tim Ferriss on the map. It's so many people have read that book and it's given them the kick in the ass that they needed to get started and try something new. And of course, Tim Ferriss, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt as well. So there's that tie in too. Yeah. Yeah. One one thing about, uh, I think a lot of people that are stuck in jobs, they kind of, they get so stuck in their routines that they kind of feel that they have to work eight hours a day. Like it's, you know, like it's kind of expected of you as a normal person to like have a job where you dedicate a third of the day to your work and you really don't need to. It's all how you structure your, uh, your business model and what it is you're doing and how you accomplish your tasks. It's very like, you know, very possible that you can set up a life where you don't have to put in a ton of hours and, when you have that, you realize like how valuable time is because you can just mm -hmm. you can continue to build when you have more time. If you have a day where you you literally don't have any free time, it's it's really hard to get anything off the ground. So, yeah, it's it's funny. It reminds me of jujitsu in a lot of ways, again, because it's all about efficient processes and systems. Right. When I started jujitsu as a white belt, I mean, I lost like 10 pounds in the first month just because I was going at it like 110%. But now, you know, I can grapple way more effectively and barely break a sweat because efficiency, right? Yeah. And it's it's a similar thing with, with business and just with the life that you create for yourself. You know, there is this dogma that, oh, you know, you need to be working all of these hours. But look, I, I am much more impressed if someone can achieve something in five hours a day than if someone has to use 16 hours a day to achieve the same result, right? It's always more impressive if you can do more with less. So I'm not a big fan of this, of worshiping hard work for hard work's sake. Yeah. I mean, hard work is usually essential if you wanna get anywhere, but just hard work by itself is not enough. You wanna to try to maximize your results too. Yeah. yeah, and the thing about working for someone else is if you work really hard and you can get your job done in five hours instead of eight, you don't get to go home early. You have to now do someone else's job for the remaining three <laughs> yeah. hours. So when you're an entrepreneur and you work for yourself, it's like if you get your job done in five hours, sweet. That's three hours that I can have with my kids or I can study something else or take up a new hobby. We've talked about this on the podcast before, you know, starting your own gym and things like that. If you do have a, an outlet or a skill that is original and there's a desire for it, there's a demand for it from the people, then I would recommend pursuing it because for me, nothing is more satisfying than uh, being your own boss. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I liked, like those books I mentioned was like very early, like Gary Vaynerchuk stuff. And then like Lily, especially like all the social media he puts out about like, you know, hustle, 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 hustle all the time. You need to be working all the time. Again, like, you know, 
I really value my time at home. I really value my time, like, you know, being able to be there for my son and Hillary and like, you know, like the amount of time I got to spend because we were like, you know, we were traveling as a family together. We were doing some work stuff and visiting gyms and visiting factories and stuff like that. But like moving forward, like I really want to be able to have like, you know, everything I do with the business, like there's a work-life balance in mind that is like non-negotiable for me. And like, I understand there's certain things we could do and make a lot more money, but at the end for me and for Hillary is like, is not worth it if like, you know, we're working all the time and we don't get to spend time together and we don't get to see our kids grow up, you know? And then going back to what you were saying about if you have something that, you know, like you're creative and like, you know, you, there's something you want to put out there. There's one book I read earlier, uh, Seth Godin's last, last book. What was it? It was Shipping Creative Work. That one was really good. It's one of the books I read earlier this year. Just searching for it right now, actually, added to my wish list. One of the things I like about Seth Godin is he puts all of his stuff on Audible. Do you read uh, actual paper books or do you listen to audiobooks? Because I've almost completely transitioned over to audiobooks at this point. I just, I love them so much more than actually having paper copies. But I know I'm, I might be the only one who feels that way. So The Practice is the name of the book. Ah, I see. The Practice, I'm looking at my Audible now. The Practice is one of the books I recommend because like at the end of the day too, it's like I have so many friends that started little companies or thought about starting little companies and I thought they had potential, but they were like so shy about putting their take on a gi or their take on a rush car out there. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I don't know how many how many geese we went through over the years. And like a lot of people don't like our geese, but like, you know, there's enough people that like our stuff, that buy our stuff. That is great. Like you guys love the polos we were talking about earlier. And like, I remember uh, BGHQ sold like a hundred of them. Mm -hmm. And I, I popped in to see what people were saying on the, on like the sell page, see how the sell was going. And like, people were making fun of like, you know, oh, why would you make that? I was like, oh, that's too expensive. If I'm paying that much for a polo, it better be an actual polo. Like, you know, like nonsense like that. But yeah. we, they sold that in 12 hours, you know? So... Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's always going to be people. I, th I think when people say things like that, they don't realize they're not the target audience for a product exactly. like that, So, right? you, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, if you want to start your own small company or, like, make whatever, you just have to put yourself out there. And that's what uh, that's like Golden Book's about, and it's great. Another book that I read this year I liked a lot uh, is Range, uh, Why Generalists Trump in a Specialized World, uh, David Epstein. Mm -hmm. I thought that was good because – one of the things I found, like, you know, being able to do a multiple things in your, like, you know, if especially you're starting a small business, like you want to wear a lot of hats mm -hmm. and you're not necessarily going to be comfortable <laughs> doing all this stuff. And the one thing is that I hate accounting. Me too. <laughs> I hate it with a passion. So like, you know, like bookkeeping, I, there's like a website, uh, bench.co. Uh, they're like, I think they're based in Vancouver. They're a Canadian company. And yeah. They, yeah. Like, bench you know, accounting. They, yeah. They pull, they, they pull our stuff. And then like once a month I talk to somebody and they send my stuff to a CPA and like, I have to think about it for like, uh, maybe 30 minutes a month over the year. And it's great because I, early on, I was like, a buddy was helping me and I have to like keep stuff on, um, uh, on QuickBooks. Oh my God. And like, it just, I just hated it. I hated every minute of it. So like, you know, when you start a business and as the business starts to grow and like you have the capital to like, you know, have other people do it and uh, you're able to delegate some tasks, but you, you're not going to be able to delegate everything. So uh, especially if you have a partner that like, you know, fills in the holes and like, you know, your skill set is even better because Hillary is like much more organized than I am and is such an amazing graphic designer that like, you know, I'm able, I'm much better. Like, you know, if we need to look at a spreadsheet and like, you know, we need to deal with the factory like that, that's my job or it's in or it's out dealing, dealing with USPS and DHL, that kind of stuff. I'm great at, but when it comes to like organizing where stuff is going to go in the warehouse, like that's Hillary. When it comes to like designing stuff, that's Hillary. So having a partner and being able between is it's just you or you and your partner and like, you know, learning different things. Because like you don't need to be great at it, like you know you don't need to be world class at it. You just need to be good enough for your business to exist. Is like you know that's that's what makes it work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think a, actually owning a school is one of the best environments to foster uh, what I'm about to mention. But I think any people with a variety of different businesses can use this, and that's the idea of uh, exchanging skills. 
you know, like a lot of people from all walks of life come into my school to train and you get to know them and then you find out, oh, this guy's an accountant or this guy's an electrician. You know, this guy cuts hair, this guy does this and and you you do, you network and you find out, hey, these people have like a lot of great skills. And so I can if I need something done, you know, electrical related, I can go to my student who's an electrician and say, hey, you know, if you do this for me, I can I can give you a private or I can waive your fees for a month or whatever. And then that's like a really good way I found anyways to to kind of build my business and save it saves you a lot of time sourcing out uh, labor and and different things like that. It's just like a, it's a great way to network. And for me, it's something that I've used a lot to grow my business is just networking with with the people that are surrounding me. And then you kind of have this you kind of create this situation where you are supporting each other and uh, you can save a lot of time. It's funny you actually mentioned that, Matt, because I just realized in my personal life, my accountant is a black belt. My lawyer is a black belt. My dentist is a black belt. My plumber is a black belt. <laughs> like basically all of these people I know through jujitsu, they like <laughs> we do these skill exchange things and I, I obviously prefer to use their services over anyone else's. So it's funny how jujitsu has become this kind of thread that's tied together everything in my life. Yeah, I definitely did a lot of bartering early on and just like, hey, can you do this for me? Can you help me with this website? Can you help me with this? Like, I'll give you a gi. I'll give you two gis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially if stuff's not moving. <laughs> it's like, oh, I can put this yeah. to use now. Well, on that note, on that note, we've taken up a lot of your time and thank you for being so generous with it. Uh, we should probably tie this up. If people want to learn more about where to get those gis, Nelson, what's the best way for them to get to your brand? Oh, Invertigear.com. And uh, at Inverted Gear on Instagram, uh, you see all, all our stuff. We do have a YouTube channel. We are planning to put a lot more content out, especially with the fitness stuff. And one of the things, one of my favorite things we were doing on the YouTube channel is we were going on the Reddit, uh, the Jiu-Jitsu subreddit, and we were answering White Belt Wednesday questions. And it was one of the most fun, like little experiments we ever did. And it was great. So as one of the things we're trying, like, you know, once this thing is figured out and I can like, you know, besides a training partner, we need to figure out like a place to film and everything. So hopefully sometime this year we can bring that back. Awesome. 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 Well, I will definitely be keeping eyes on that. Hope everyone else does too. And of course, for those of you who want to support us, always greatly appreciated. You can go to patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. That's the best way to help support the show. Again, that's patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. Our Patreon is a great way to get access to early episodes of the show, premium stuff that Matt and I make, as well as access to our Discord community. Nelson, thank you again so much for your time. Really appreciate it. It was great to finally actually get you on the podcast and talk to you. I think this was a fantastic conversation about the, the details of the entrepreneurial side of jiu-jitsu. Hope this is helpful to our audience. And again, thank you for your time. And to all of the listeners, talk to you guys next time. Yeah, thanks a lot, Nelson. I appreciate you coming on the show. No, thank you guys. <laughs>